Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm founder of the Your People Marketing and PR Agency, and I lead the Make Meaning Movement, a platform that helps purpose-driven visionaries and leaders do business with meaning. On this podcast, you'll hear stories of how people dare to take chances to live the life they want with meaningful work and purposeful days. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. Before Michelle Cuomo became Dean of Arts and Communication at Seminole State College in Florida, she served as a Dean at Montgomery County Community College in Pennsylvania. With a master's in theater from Ohio State University and a doctor of education from Benedictine University, Michelle believes arts education prepares students for anything and everything in life. She currently serves as chairperson of the American Association of University Administrators, a group of higher education administrators who voice concerns and face challenges together. And she also serves on the Association of American Colleges and Universities Institute on High Impact Practices, which provides higher education teams with resources to help students have a better college experience. Michelle, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Thank you for having me, Lynn. I'm so thrilled to speak with you. I feel like you're in such um, pivotal leadership roles at a time when we need really solid leaders in higher education. And you know, I work a lot with um, schools and universities in my marketing company. And so I know that we've been at a pivotal time in higher education for a while. You know, before COVID hit, um, colleges and universities were already challenged to think about how they presented themselves and what value they offered. And now it's, it's as if the pandemic has stripped away all superficial layers of offerings to lay bare what the true value could be. So I wanted to hear what you think about that and where you think higher ed might end up when all of this ends. I, I want to say I agree. I think um, co- uh, colleges and universities in the United States have been challenged um, for a number of years to really help um, folks understand their value in a changing world. And I think the pandemic has definitely brought that all to the forefront. Mm-hmm. I also think it's an opportunity now um, for us to truly understand the potential for online learning, for remote learning, mm-hmm. for creativity. And um, I think we should spend as much time as we can to really to really delve into that and to see what's possible for our learners. Because we, de- we uh, and it's really funny, I hear a lot now about reopening colleges, but we never closed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We continue to serve our students. And we're, we're talking about opening buildings back, not a reopening education. As education has cur- occurred mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. this entire time. And it has been a challenge for many, for faculty and for mm-hmm. students to move into a new modality of learning. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's, um, it's, learning has never stopped. It's really a great point. And I think it must be a challenge for you as um, you know, such an artist. I mean, especially in putting on productions. I know um, I'm in Detroit and I have friends who are very active in local theater, in um, high school theater and community theater. And um, they've really done some interesting things to move some performances remote and in ways that I never thought were possible. I would love to hear from you about your experience, you know, in theater and in productions. Like, how, how do we do that? How do we pivot that into another realm and, and still have it be that powerful, meaningful experience? Thank you for asking. Immediately when, uh, when 
buildings, as I say, closed down, uh, theaters began to innovate. And I was fortunate enough, enough to connect with folks I hadn't worked with for over 20 years. And a former colleague, Amy Typoli Canfield, formed the Pandemic Play Reading Series, and they have produced theater the, this entire pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it's been very exciting because Theater on Zoom is, is very interesting. It, there's a lot of possibilities there, and we've seen people starting to go further. Um, Bard College did a production that was highlighted in American theater, which actually shared props were shared, costumes, lighting. Um, I think um, there's been a Godspell that was just produced, which includes social distancing on stage and partitions. And so um, theater goes on. Uh, drive-in theater is something we're exploring at my college, Seminole State College of Florida, using radio drama because recreating the setting of a radio station um, doesn't require the idea of touching or moving in a way that is not socially distant. So mm-hmm. I think everyone's been very creative. And I also think, um, again, the advantage that I think we will find uh, moving forward after the pandemic concerns are over is that we've learned to work together across the world. We are, I'm, I'm, you know, all of a sudden in a play with someone I went to grad school with who lives in Greece mm. because we can all be there together on this platform. And that's really exciting. And I think our ability to reach audiences and have, you know, have us all in one space, you know, in a virtual space together is something that I definitely don't want to let go of once we're all back in our buildings. Yeah, I think you're, you make a really good point because, you know, we have to find ways to connect even when we're not able to physically connect. And I think, you know, there is such a beauty to being in the audience with um, something live happening on a stage in front of you. But it's funny, you know, as, we, as I was fortunate enough to see Hamilton a few years ago in Chicago and my husband wasn't with us. And so when Disney Plus uh, released it recently mm-hmm. and we were watching it, um, you know, my seats were very far away from the stage. And so when I was watching it on TV and I saw, I think it's been a meme now about how um, the actor who plays the king, there's all the spit that came out and everything. And we were just like, now we all see things through a pandemic lens and we're like, oh, that can't be good. <laughs> you know? It's like, it's like, but we still had the the beautiful experience of seeing Hamilton, we were sitting in our family room and, and it was still a beautiful performance. It was still powerful. Yes, I agree. I really enjoyed, I saw it over the Independence Day weekend and it just was very, it was a gift to be able to see that at that time. I, I agree. And on the, and, and close-ups and seeing what the actors were doing, I think was very interesting that most, most people, even who had, have had tickets to Hamilton didn't get that opportunity before to see what people were doing completely. It's very interesting. Yeah. So I was reading about some of the really innovative things that you've been doing um, throughout your career with, with theater, um, with productions. And so like, just to mention a couple of them, you know, like fused stage productions with dance to sort of transform stories and make them more um, relatable in the modern time. I know um, there was a production of Euripides, the Trojan woman, um, performed in the Japanese dance art form called, is it Buto? Buto? How do they Buto. pronounce that? Buto. Buto. Um, and that was at the University of Mississippi. I know um, there was a production to Megan McCain's speech at the funeral. Of her. <laughs> Tell me about how you um, take old stories or long-held performances or traditional theater 
and make it relevant for modern times? That is such a great question. And I think that's why theater is so important. I think theater, great plays will speak across hundreds of years. And uh, because it speaks of the human condition, which no matter what our technology is, um, we are still human. And Mm -hmm. The Trojan Women was such an interesting play for me to work on. I'm a pacifist and thought of it as an anti-war play because we see what happens basically to women in war through this play and the loss that they, that occurs for them, which is interesting because we don't often think about war and women traditionally. Now we do in our century because women are in combat, but women always had great loss in war, great pain, Mm -hmm. rape, um, loss of children, loss of husbands and fathers. Um, so, um, I always thought of the Trojan Women as an anti-war play, but it is really not. I learned through producing it that as much as the women suffer in the play, they still believe in the ideals of war. When, when her grandchild is killed as a small child, because the enemy fears that when this boy grows up, he'll come back and kill them. Uh, she says, yeah, that's what I wanted to happen, you know? Mm. So um, I had um, been interviewed before and I had mentioned Megan McCain mm-hmm. um, and she reminded Megan McCain's speech um, about her father at one point reminded me of, of going back to my time looking at the Trojan women mm-hmm. and realizing that, you know, these ideals continue um, the ideal of, of defending one's country, mm-hmm. which is really what Heke was, uh, was talking about. Mm-hmm. about the, the glory of that, of mm-hmm. the importance of that, um, and how Megan McCain was reminding me of Hecuba in her moments of grief over the loss of her father. So I think that, that Euripides' play lives on because mm-hmm. we still talk about the same things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to work with the Fireside Theater this summer we read one history play a week and we've read a whole cycle from Richard II to Richard III, which comprises many hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And again, notions of power and control and politics and who really has power in any system can translate. Uh, you know, in England in the 12th and 13th centuries, they believed in the divine right of kings. Uh, no, you know, our Western world does not believe in that anymore, but we are still looking at power systems and who's in charge and what that means to the people. Mm-hmm. And so reading these plays now is so interesting because we still have the same questions, the same concerns as human beings. And so any theater piece that that is great uh, can speak to us today. And sometimes staging plays as as a director can be really fun because we can say, how can we support the audience's understanding of this as continuing to be a contemporary concern? Mm-hmm. And so if um, in exploring the Trojan women through Butoh, which was a form that arose after World War II and after the bombing of Nagasaki, mm-hmm. um, to me that connected to the Trojan women because that devastation that occurred in Japan mm-hmm. in the 1940s connected back to that ancient Greek devastation that these women are experiencing. It's like we never you learn know. our lessons. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's really, it's really interesting. 
Um, but, but I think it, it's just about being human again. It's entirely about being human. And, you know, so I wanted to ask you about another production um, that you did, the Laramie Project. And um, I guess that I haven't seen that. I haven't had the, the opportunity, but it um, apparently chronicled the reaction to the 1998 murder of University of Wyoming student Matthew Shepard, um, who was gay. And you were quoted as saying, I felt like I understood more about humanity when I was done. And again, it reached a lot of people and got a lot of people thinking. And so I was wondering if that's the role of art, you know, to get people thinking and to understand more about humanity. And perhaps could that even be the role of higher ed? I mean, am I reaching here or do you think there's oh, something to that? I don't think you're reaching at all. I think, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think the arts um, help, they are, you know, they say, you know, the, the arts hold up a mirror to our societies mm. and um, they, they serve to, I think, especially, and I'm going to speak about theater, which is what mm -hmm. I'm trained in, but I have the fortune to work closely with musicians and artists as well. But I think um, the arts really can teach us empathy, which is one of the most important things right now to think about um, because we can, as we experience a character's journey, um, we see ourselves in that somewhat. So when we see Hamilton, you know, Alexander Hamilton, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda is so brilliant because he's, you know, he sees um, the connections of this man to current people, you know, um, immigrants, we get things done, they mm -hmm. say in Hamilton, and he's saying that so pointedly. Mm -hmm. And he presents people on stage who are black and brown, and we never think of our founding fathers Mm -hmm. as uh, anything but uh, Caucasians, but actually mm -hmm. our founding fathers were, uh, you know, as he says, scrappy and hungry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I think Hamilton is the perfect example of, yes, that's who, if this was, if the American Revolution was happening today, yes, that's, that's what it would be like. Mm -hmm. um, so he connects so easily and seamlessly our contemporary society to our founding as a society in the United States. And, um, so I think the arts teaches us that we are all in it together, that we all are, we all are um, experiencing the same thing on some level. And, um, you know, the uh, Laramie Project was profound. It, it is a piece of docudrama. So anything that was said on stage was said by someone that was interviewed and who still walks around today. It's very contemporary uh, for the most part. Most of the, those folks are still alive. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to meet, I got to meet one of the characters eventually, wow. which was really cool. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Um, but um, what I realized was, um, and, and I think the Laramie Project too, uh, reflecting our current polarized society, I think uh, revisiting that, we'd see a lot of the same arguments mm -hmm. um, about, um, there's one character who, who talks about hate crimes and she says, well, if you kill some if you kill someone, that means you hate them, right? Why mm -hmm. is it a hate crime? Every, every murder is a hate crime. Mm -hmm. And that was such an interesting way of putting it. And, and she also, too, was very concerned about police in her area because she felt that Matthew Shepard's um, death was so well publicized and so mourned. And, and she worried that policemen in her area who were, also, who were killed in the line of duty were not um, as, as um, lifted up 
And that was a concern of hers. And, you know, we still hear things like that today in our current discourse. So um, again, that was over 20 years ago that that took place. It, it was such a, a difficult, difficult thing to live with for such a long time because it was so painful and horrible the way mm-hmm. Matthew was killed. Mm-hmm. And um, what what the folks experienced, uh, the person who found him, the um, medical professionals who tried to cut the ropes away from him and the pain that they experienced. Uh, Again, it really just thrust you into every part of it. I also actually, um, Matthew Shepard's mother, Judy Shepard, is an activist now, and I have actually gotten to meet her a couple of times. And um, that was powerful too, because they talk a little bit about Matthew's stature. He was a very, very tiny man. Um, and his hair and his eyes. And when I looked into her eyes, it was really a profound experience for me because mm. I saw uh, I saw Matthew in her. And wow. it, certainly Matthew lives on in her because she has made such a difference in cultivating awareness and supporting families. Mm-hmm. It's really, really wonderful how she turned her grief into activism. It's, it's admirable because I can't even imagine mm. such a tragedy and enduring that as a parent. Um, I'm the mom of four teens, and my mother always says that you're only as happy as your unhappiest child, and uh, there's something to be said for that. I I think good theater, good art evokes in you a reaction, a feeling, a reckoning, you know? I know Mm -hmm. that when I saw Hamilton, I... um, I had done a lot of PR and for um, some refugee resettlement organizations, and it was at a time right after um, the last presidential election when executive orders limited the number of refugees that were being accepted here. And it was, to me, personally devastating and and just horrifying. And we did so much work to really speak out and have refugee voices heard. And then, um, you know, I took my kids to see Hamilton and I I literally started weeping when I heard that line, Mm -hmm. you know, immigrants, we get the job done because it felt like such a truth for that moment in our, you know, living history. Um, And yet it was from hundreds of years ago that they were evoking that. So I think you're right. I think that no matter when the story originated, if you can make it relevant to today, it's it lives on. It's really powerful. Absolutely. So I'd like to pivot a little bit and talk about some higher ed focuses. So I'm wondering, you know, one of the things I've thought a lot about um, and reflected on, you know, in my work with universities and colleges, and then thought back to what it was like when I was in school, and now my, my kids are going off to school. And I wonder what you would think is the purpose of higher ed today, um, and how it might have changed from its initial origins, you know, what, what it's like at this moment. That's really interesting. I, you know, I, I, I think a lot of how we deliver higher education still is rooted in our original ideas about higher education in the United States, which was really the idea of uh, young gentlemen, mm-hmm. white gentlemen, um, going off going away from the family and the society and being in this place where they could focus on their studies. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really interesting because if you um, review the history of higher education, football arose because um, back to Hamilton, um, students were dueling each other so much mm. and uh, they, football arose as a way to kind of um, channel all this uh, energy in these 18 to 21 year old male students who needed an outlet. And so <laughs> oh they, they, <laughs> uh, 
it's so interesting. Um, so they'd stop dueling and killing each other. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean, that's the original, you know, that's the origins of um, higher ed in our country. And now, of course, we have evolved to really expecting and requiring universal access to higher education. And even those who bemoan, well, what about the trades and all that? Higher education is taking the place of apprenticeship. And mm -hmm. it, it's, it's at my, my state college has HVAC and automotive and all the trades as well as liberal arts education. Mm -hmm. So it, we, we've really come very far, but we're still using models that are evolving, but maybe um, not necessarily answering everything for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly, I think the research has shown that we needed to think about our classrooms long before the pandemic. We needed to think about how to reach different audiences beyond those who these educational models were designed for. Mm -hmm. And um, I was really happy to work for a while with American Association of Colleges and Universities on uh, the work of George Koo and High Impact Practices, mm -hmm. which were practices that were um, observed to really um, support learners in a different way by including collaborative learning and service learning, problem solving, mm -hmm. and very active, you know, all around active learning mm -hmm. um, that made people part of a community. And, mm -hmm. and valuing that very highly. So I think right now we are, um, we are struggling, we struggle with universal access. We struggle with equity. We struggle with making sure that everyone not only has access, but everyone has a, comes into an equal playing field. Mm -hmm. And certainly we've been especially challenged with that moving on to online because if people don't have adequate internet service or adequate mm -hmm. screens, then they are left behind. And so we have a new challenge now when we're expecting largely online learning for a little while. Although, you know, there is some face-to-face -face coming back. It's yes. really not completely there. So that's a huge challenge. And at the same time, my observation and knowledge of online learning is that it's been very, it is, when well done, it's extremely effective in creating a community of learners in creating social presence. Mm -hmm. um, it actually can um, almost democratize the, um, the classroom because it doesn't matter how extroverted or introverted you are as the traditional classroom does for participation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's studies even that some people do actually excel at online learning. So mm -hmm. I think it's about bringing everyone, um, everyone into the fold uh, supporting faculty development that's effective and that um, taps into faculty knowledge. And it's about making sure that we continue our equity mission, which I felt was very challenged by the pandemic. Um, but that was something we were working on for quite a while before the pandemic. I think mm -hmm. that was our big challenge. We were also challenged by the fact that technology has actually made learning or knowledge and content very, very accessible. Right. So now you can look up anything on Wikipedia really quickly. You don't have to wait for a lecture to tell you what year something happened. Mm -hmm. um, but understanding what, what I think we were challenged with was understanding, appreciating context, mm -hmm. appreciating um, research and scholarship, mm -hmm. uh, having the ability to discern mm -hmm. facts and mm -hmm. um, 
having the ability to understand their sources really well. And that's something that, you know, and especially in the age of discussions about fake news and um, transformations of um, video and all that that's going on, I think we, um, in higher education, we're really challenged and have a great role to play in supporting students' understanding of what to do with knowledge, mm-hmm. what to do with content, because mm-hmm. it's all out there. So now it's about understanding how to use it well. I think that's really powerful. And there's just so much to choose from that I think it can be overwhelming. And so we do need, we all need to learn how to discern sources and how to, what to trust and how to digest the content that we're seeing. You know, I think one other issue that's a huge um, equity divider in our country is the cost of higher ed. And Mm -hmm. it's something that I grapple with a lot. And I, you know, there's so many ways to look at it because um, oftentimes, you know, people are paying, families are paying for bells and whistles, Olympic-sized pools, you know, fancy food in the dorms and things like that. And I, it made me start to wonder as a parent, you know, what, what should I allow my kids to do? How much do we mortgage our future for education? And I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I know it's not really an easily answered question, and I'm not sure how to make higher ed accessible and affordable for everybody so that they not only have access, but can be in the same classroom. I just, I'm not sure what our, what our answers are there. Do you have any thoughts about that huge question? (laughs) I agree. It's a huge question. And I really, again, I go back to the idea of that. um, I think we have an ideal in our minds about that college experience and, you know, where it's a social um, interaction as a social contract uh, that you're going to meet lifelong friends and you're going to develop networks that support you in your profession and maybe you'll find a partner, you know, yeah. and um, you'll have, you know, you'll experiment with who you are as an individual. I think that's part of what people are seeking when they go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really, that's another piece, you know, which we're facing in the pandemic is even if people go back, are they really going to have that? <laughs> you know, yeah, right. Right, now, uh, right. it's still going to be, it's going to be um, slightly different no matter what um, at this point. But, um, you know, moving, I, I, I taught for a, a long time in universities before I moved to co- community and state colleges. And now I really, I really embrace the community and state college mission mm-hmm. and really support it and support it to parents because I think it provides a time where the student can actually focus on, on working, on developing what they want as a mm-hmm. student, mm-hmm. Um, without great cost, right? Um, they also are working with faculty who are dedicated teachers, mm-hmm. um, more so than they are in the university system. And not that I mean, there's brilliant teachers in the university system, certainly, but many, a lot of the energy that faculty have to put in is around um, their own research, mm-hmm. um, as well as teaching. Whereas in the community and state colleges, the primary mission is to teach. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, and the smaller classrooms. So I really think state and community colleges make such great sense financially. I think that the standards are high and um, the fact that we do a lot of work to seamlessly transfer our students and the fact that, you know, an English 101 class at Seminole State College equals an English 101 class at 
University of Florida is, is very meaningful. So I, at this point, I really think that those first two years can really make a difference for students. And also the fact we were doing a lot of work around dual enrollment for high school students. So high school students can get a lot done. Um, I'm a little, I'm actually a little cautious about that sometimes because I think um, being a college student, there's an expectation of adulthood mm-hmm. and, and colleges are equipped for adults, not sure. necessarily minors. So I, I, I'm, a little, I'm a little reserved about that. But I think for a student who wants that college experience, um, I think doing some work, some foundational work in either dual enrollment or state college or community college makes quite a lot of sense particularly as the expectations continue to rise and people have to get master's degrees. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how much are we going to pay for that bachelor's? Mm -hmm. We really have to weigh it out, I think, as family members, as parents who really are concerned about our students. And I really, you know, I think it's really hard for folks who remember, you know, I I went to college many, many years ago. Um, The student loan Mm -hmm. model was completely different yeah. Um, nowadays, um, with with the changes in laws in the '90s, um, mm-hmm. uh, student loans are a de- very di- something very different. I think not everyone appreciates that that going to college is such an expensive proposition compared to the, what it was. Yeah. And I also think you know we we as a society used to think of higher education as for the public good, mm-hmm. and and I, I we don't think of that so much anymore. We think it's for individual good. You know, it's really great if you can get an education. That Mm -hmm. doesn't help me, but I completely disagree. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think we need wonderful nurses. We need great doctors. Mm -hmm. Um, We need um, well-educated policemen. We need um, excellent teachers Mm -hmm. and that all requires education. So I, I am concerned that that we've shifted our thinking about education and forgotten that it is a public good. I, I certainly, when I, in my region, I want to make sure that I have people who are supporting me in, with my health and my safety that are well-educated. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that I hope um, shifts back to thinking about, about how a good education helps the entire community. Well, I feel like that represents a lot of the shift in perspective in America in general, because you know, you could look at politics that way. You could look at response to public health right now with the pandemic. It, it's not, not, nobody's looking at the public good. It's really, except for, you know, a minority of people. The majority of Americans now are all about, you know, what's, what's in it for me or what's my perspective. And I love that we have, you know, freedom of expression, freedom of thought, you know, individuality. I mean, that's so important, but there is a collective and there are things that have a collective impact for better or for worse. And we see that all the time now. It's not, um, it doesn't, it seems like there's this individual streak as opposed to a public for the greater good type of perspective, you know? So I guess it's in the context of our times, right? Yeah, I would agree. Every generation has to be reminded of the past, right? Yes. Yeah. I think um, we forget that something, some things were hard earned and mm-hmm. not to be taken for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we, we don't realize, sometimes we think that we as individuals did it all ourselves, but we haven't thought about who, whose shoulders we stood upon. 
Right. And right. so that's, the, you know, and again, that's why education is important because I think. Um, <laughs> so we don't lose those that's, lessons. That's, that's the role of education. I think you asked me what the role of education was. I don't know if I answered it, but I would say, you know, it's like to understand oneself in society and to then be therefore more equipped to support our society is the role of education is more, yeah. more equipped to support oneself as well as to be um, a good citizen yeah, you know, and whatever that means. I mean, we can. De- I, I guess there are. It's de- a lot of things are debatable. You know about the role of the individual, the role of the collective. But if we don't understand that, then we don't know what we're really talking about. We don't really don't really know what the debate is mm-hmm. unless we have a sense of that. So, um, Michelle, I really enjoyed speaking with you, and I wanted to close with a question that I ask all of my guests. And so, on this podcast, we talk about how you find your personal meaning and work with purpose, live with purpose. And so um, I wonder if you might offer what we call permission slips to our listeners, like give yourself permission to go in pursuit of your meaning and, and live by purpose. What advice would you give so that um, our listeners can, can get to work and, and follow you know, their unique calling? I would ask everyone to give themselves permission to keep learning, no matter what age you are or what you've already accomplished. There's still so much out there. And if there's something that you haven't pursued yet, no matter what, or if it's not your path or you didn't think it was your path, check into it. Don't, don't stop. I love it. Lifelong learning. I love it. Lifelong learning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a cliche, but. <laughs> but true. And, and it's yes. a great way to, it's a great way to finish our conversation. So Michelle Cuomo um, from Seminole State College and all of your wonderful accolades. Thank you so much for being on the Make Meaning podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Lynn. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world. Thank you.